Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is not only our beloved history professor, but also a professor of Greek, Latin, history, and patristics at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary in Denton, Nebraska. His master's degree is in classical Greek and Latin, and his doctorate is in the Fathers of the Church. He has published on the Fathers of the Church and on contemporary church history, particularly Vatican II and the liturgy in the 20th century. His most recent publication is the English translation of Yves Chiron's Annabelle Bugini, Reformer of the Liturgy. And it is a great pleasure to have you back with us, Dr. Pino, for your first ICC lecture. Well, thank you, Melanie. It's nice to be back here. Of course, I feel among friends. I teach here weekly in sacred history, and tonight is going to be a different kind of history, although there are sacred elements. So let's begin. What is this Cinco de Mario business? Is it an important cultural event for Mexicans, for Mexican-Americans? Is it just an opportunity for Americans to have a drink and fun foods between St. Patrick's Day and Memorial Day weekend? There's kind of a big empty space there. You may have heard it has something to do with a battle. Was this just a small battle? Was it a skirmish? Who were the opponents? Mexico and France? What was France doing in Mexico? What's that all about? When was this? Was it a bit of all of these things? Well, let's take a look. And what I want to do is take a look at the facts of the origin of this date, the 5th of May, 1862. Now, if you think about 1862, in this country, well, where I am, there was a big war going on between the northern states and the southern states. France was under an empire of Napoleon III. Germany was broken up into many little states, but Prussia was taking over. The Austro-Hungarian Empire was going strong. The Papal States were still the Papal States. What was going on in Mexico? Mexico had been independent of Spain. The date is messy. But Independence Day is not the, the 5th of May, as you may know. It's the 16th of September. And it goes back to 1810 when a priest from the pulpit, his name was Padre Miguel Hidalgo, said, Independence, independencia, y muerte a los españoles, and death to the Spanish. That is the Grito de Dolores, the cry from Dolores. Dolores was the name of the village, and I think of the parish of this priest. Anyway, Mexico has, is independent. What kind of government will it have? We tend to think with hindsight, especially Americans or French people, well, there's been a revolution. Of course, a republic, what else? Ah, do not yet let anachronistic prejudice cloud your vision. It could be anything. 
just as the US nearly had a king, there was a delegation to get a Prussian nobleman to become king of the US. It was an idea in the air. So too, the Mexicans thought, well, we need an emperor. And they couldn't find one. This is 1810s, 1820s. They asked King Leopold I of Belgium, be our king. He said, no, are you crazy? No, thanks. They ended up having a local emperor, a Creole. Creole means a person of Spanish blood, but born in the colonies. Augustin de Iturbide. It didn't turn out well. Less than a year, by 1823, he was kicked out by Santa Ana. You know Santa Ana, the Alamo, the, the war of, of, I'll call it Texas. Okay, the Mexican War, that Santa Ana was a man of zero political affiliations and immense power, greed for power for himself. And there'll be a struggle in Mexico from the 1820s and for many generations between two ways of looking at the world, two factions. The populist liberals, these are the equivalent to the populares in the Roman Republic, for those of you who study Roman history. On the one hand, who tended to be anti-clerical, anti-church, pro-strict democracy. And on the other hand, the more authoritarian conservatives who want to keep the privileges of the church, who want to keep the privileges of the social system they had. Nobility, la nobleza, the aristocracy and so forth. From the days of this little emperor, Iturbide, to the 1860s, there were five different forms of government in Mexico. Empire, federal republic, centralized republic, dictatorship, republic again. And again, so the liberals, by the time we get to the 1860s, the liberals are in charge. This is the party of the philosophe of Voltaire, of the, of the Freemasonic lodges. And by the time Santa Ana himself is deposed, the liberals take over. And they establish a constitution in 1857. And Mexicans to this day call this the age of la reforma, la edad de la reforma, the great reform. This is where really they see democratic republican institutions being established. Some of you are Mexican, you're welcome to jump in the chat if you want to contribute some of your knowledge. And in La Reforma, late 1850s, the Constitution of 1857, the various rights you're familiar with if you're US citizens are promulgated. Speech, conscience, the press, assembly, bearing arms even. But on the other hand also, this Constitution curtails the rights of the church. Religion no longer to be taught in public schools. Loss of privileges until La Reforma, if you were a clergyman, you could only be tried in a clerical court. Likewise, if you were a military man, only in a military court. La Reforma says, no, all citizens the same. And there's one law, an iniquitous law. I'll put the name of it in the chat. It's called La Ley de Lerdo, the Lerdo law, which said that the church may not possess property that is not strictly used for worship, meaning the church can have Chapels, monasteries, cemeteries, yes. Any other land, no. And at this time, the church owned one third of the real estate of Mexico. 
and the government is going to simply seize it and take it away. And this is going to be the beginning of an emigration from Mexico of priests and bishops, mostly to Spain and to the and to the European continent. They're going to flee. Things are bad. And if this reminds you a little bit of the Cristero era in the 20s, the power and the glory and all these things, it's a bit of a, a rehearsal for that later and more bloody, in many ways, civil war within Mexico. And another thing that's iniquitous here is that a lot of Indians owned, you know, natives, owned land communally as a kind of co Christian confraternity. And the Lerdolo is going to say, no, religious property, not for worship purposes, and they take it from the Indians. So these liberal progressives are not always in favor of the little man, you see. So there's a civil war that follows the reforma between conservatives and liberals. The US support the liberals, of course, but the US is going to be busy in the 1860s. And so the US is going to be out of the picture for five years. In 1851, we have a new liberal president, Benito Juarez. He's going to be president of Mexico on and off until 1872, including during all the events we're going to look at. Who is Benito Juarez? Let me show you a picture of the man. This is a painting of Benito Juarez. He was a lawyer. He was an Indian. The portrait doesn't show this, but he was pretty pockmarked. He, had a, he was self-willed, intelligent. Benito Juarez had attended seminary, had married well. He'd married a, a Creole, a Criolla, a, a woman of Spanish ancestry, but born in Mexico. He went to the University of Oaxaca. He will be governor of Oaxaca, of Oaxaca, this province. And he had refused to follow the order of Santa Ana during the war with the US. Once he determined that the US was going to win the war over Mexico, he said no more fighting and essentially gave up, which contributed to Mexico's loss of one third of its territory to the US. And in fact, he was exiled. He, he went to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, he fell in with all these other exiles that Santa Ana had kicked out, including some atheists, a man named Ocampo, for example, and others. And he will later come back. Now, Benito Juarez was, was particularly anti-clerical. He is the one who had introduced this law against clerical privilege. He also believed that religious orders should be abolished. Jesuits, Franciscans, abolish them all. This is the kind of man. He always wore that black suit. You see, he was a small man in a black suit, humorless, the sort of man who doesn't say jokes and doesn't drink wine and is single-mindedly occupied with his vision of society, a kind of Lenin, if you like. He also made decisions he had to make as president. So for example, during the, the civil war against the conservatives, he had hired some banditos to fight. After the war, he gave those banditos jobs as policemen. And so you can imagine the situation in Mexico. El respeto al derecho ajeno es la paz. That was one of the mottos of Benito Juarez. Yeah, respect for another man's right is peace. That was one of the many, there are many legends around Benito Juarez. El um, el, beren, el Benemérito de la Nación, I think they call him, the well-deserving of the nation. He's seen as a founder of the Mexican Republic today. Now, this is what's going on in Mexico. There's been a civil war. It's been a real mess. And Mexico owes a lot of money to European banks. 
And it has to be said that the European banks are also exploiting a little bit the Mexicans. So Benito Juarez and his government in July of 1861 say, we can't pay for two years. And a lot of the, I mean, the loans, some of these loans have been taken out by the, the conservatives, you know. And the Swiss bankers say, we'll lend you 3 million francs to be repaid, and you owe us 75 million francs in government bonds down the line. Exorbitant, usurious rates. And one of the parties interested in this loan is going to be the Duke of Morny, who is the half-brother of Napoleon III. I'll throw that in now, for now, okay? He owns 30% of that debt. Now, the British, the Spanish, and the French, all of whom are creditors, organize, they sign a treaty in London, and they organize a fleet to go and get the money from the Mexicans. This is going to be the casus belli. They sign an agreement. In that agreement, it is postulated, we are going to get our money from Mexico. We are not going to take any land from that country. They come. The British send 700 men, the Spanish 6,000 soldiers, the French at first only 3,000 soldiers. But ultimately what happens is they all arrive in, in uh, Veracruz, Veracruz, and they seize the customs house, they knock a few people around, and then the Spanish and the English, realizing that Napoleon III has other plans, leave. And this is the point when Napoleon III is going to use his army essentially to conquer Mexico, all of it. And he's ultimately, as I shall show you, going to install a Habsburg archduke, brother of the emperor of Austria, whose name is Maximilian, as emperor of Mexico. And it sounds crazy. You have this independent Latin American country that is supposed now to have an, Austri an Austrian emperor? What was Napoleon III thinking? It's a bit of an enigma, and there are many conspiracy theories. I'll give you a few. The financial interests of his uh, half-brother, the Duke of Morny, I mentioned. Was he going just for the money for his, his family? Could be. Was this a kind of crusade to set up a Catholic monarchy to replace the anti-clerical Freemasons who ran the Republic? And who, I should add, had not taken land away from the Protestant denominations, only from the church. Is this crusade a gift of Napoleon III to the Pope? Since Napoleon III is in favor of the unity of Italy being taken away from the Pope, is it like a flower he's giving him? Or maybe it was the, the Maximilian's dream of founding a great Catholic empire that might be the beginning of a succession of Catholic kingdoms in Latin America to resist Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, capitalistic commercial interests. After all, he had a cousin, Pedro II of Brazil. Maybe it was a consolation prize given to the Habsburgs. After all, Napoleon III had also, with a view to helping the, the emergence of a new Italy, taken away portions of the Habsburg empire from Austria, which were in Italy, and given them to Italy. Lombardy was lost in this way. Maybe Napoleon III said, okay, Habsburgs, you lost bits of Italy, how about Mexico? How about the wife of Napoleon III? Her name was Eugenie, sounds so French now, but her real name was Eugenia de Montijo. 
She was Spanish. She was very pious. And she had dreams, perhaps, of reestablishing a kind of Spanish empire because the Habsburgs had originally been the family that ruled Spain. There was a split between the, the Habsburgs and the Borbores, the, Bur the House of Bourbon, which did rule in Mexico. So, well, the Habsburgs are like relatives nearly. Was that it? Napoleon III maybe wanted to dig some kind of a canal, maybe through the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in Mexico, or why not? Panama. People were thinking these things in those days. Maybe Napoleon III thought, well, if we can retake an empire over there, it'll make up for losing Louisiana. It'll make up for losing French Canada, because of course, Mexico under Habsburg was supposed to be a puppet state for the French. Lastly, it should be pointed out, <laughs> I, or it should be pointed out lastly, that Maximilian's, this future emperor of Mexico, his wife called Charlotte Carlota. She was the daughter of the king of Belgium, the very king of Belgium who had turned down the crown in the 1820s. And the head of her household, of the household of Maximilian, Archduke and Carlota, was a certain Countess Ludloff, whose son-in-law was a man, a Mexican by the name of Gutierrez de Estrada, a strong conservative, ambassador of Mexico to Rome, to the Vatican, an ardent monarchist. You see the connections here? So you have this tangled web between Napoleon III of France, his wife Eugenie, Eugenia de Montijo, the Habsburgs, and Maximilian, Archduke only, he was admiral of the Austrian fleet, which is not a very big deal. And his wife, Carlotta, has in her retinue of ladies-in-waiting the mother-in-law of an ardent pro-monarchy Mexican conservative. All of these things are coming together to make it nearly inevitable that this lanky, fair-haired, somewhat romantic young man is going to find himself emperor of a powder keg, Mexico. So the French are at war in Mexico. They're trying to take it over. Can it be said that no one in Mexico wanted to have a French-imposed emperor? No. Very few did, it's true. Most people didn't think of it. But there was a whole stratum of Mexican society that thought, yes, we need to put an end to the mess we're in. We need a strong leader, and if possible, a strong leader who, who is an ally of the great power in Europe, France. The Catholic Church, of course, is in favor of this scheme simply because it is not Juarez. Much of the Mexican nobility, including the Indian nobility, are in favor of Napoleon's scheme. This is not very well known, but when the, the Spanish took Mexico in the 16th century, they left in place the Aztec nobility and gave them rights as Spanish noblemen. They had to be right, the right to be called Don and Doña. They had to write the right to ride a horse and to carry a, a pistol. And they retained their ancestral lands and their serfs. And they were integrated into the nobility of all the Spanish empire. They supported this as well. And just as an aside, for the two reasons I've cited so far, number one, the Indian nobility being in favor of a monarchy, and the Indian campesinos who lived in communes 
and who are dispossessed by the laws of the Republic. For these reasons, 75% of the native Indians of Mexico who fought in this war between the liberal governor of Mexico and France fought on the side of France and in favor of the monarchy. Just a little aside that's not often mentioned. So really we have here two worlds colliding, worldviews colliding. The Voltairean, philosophe, liberal point of view versus the Enlightenment point of view versus the monarchical, divine rights of kings, Christian and traditional view. So that's where we are now. We're getting close to the Battle of the 5th of May. And among the first battles, by the way, I'm going to show you a picture here, just regarding my point of Freemasonry. I don't want to sound too much like a, a conspiracy theories, theorist, but you see here is the monument to Benito Juarez, al benemerito Benito Juarez la patria, so the fatherland to the well-deserving Benito Juarez. Here is, and on the anniversary, I think of his death, the Freemasons have a ceremony. Here's a Freemason right in front. And there's a picture of him as a Freemason. So just to you know, confirm that I'm not making that particular aspect of it up. Now, do you see this map I'm now showing? Okay, let me expand it a bit. So here's Puebla, we're getting to Puebla. Oh, right here. In red is Mexico. In green is the state of Puebla and the, the Puebla, the city is right there where that black dot is. Veracruz, which is the main port in those days, is right just about where the B of Puebla is. That's where all these foreign troops are landing. The French are bringing all sorts of troops over. French soldiers, foreign legion, the Zouaves with their baggy red pants, you know. And even because Napoleon III thought to himself, well, I'm going to send people to fight in the tropics. I need some African soldiers. So he asked the Pasha of Egypt to lend him 400 Af black African soldiers, most of whom were abducted on the day before they were put on the boat and sent over to Mexico. It's a 46 day crossing, put into French uniforms and told you're fighting for Napoleon III now. There are so many details to this war that beggar imagination, and that's another one of these, these forcibly inducted black Africans from Egypt stuck onto boats and told, right, now you're going to fight for us. And these 400 blacks were among the most ferocious and best soldiers for the cause. So much so that they were given a reward. They got to visit France in Toulon before being sent back to Egypt when all is there said and done. Now, from Veracruz, to Mexico City, of course, lies Puebla. So they had to take Puebla. Napoleon III believed it was a mere village. Maybe he had a faulty understanding of Spanish. In Spanish, Pueblo means village. Puebla is the name of this town. And he thought it was a small village, when in fact it had 80,000 inhabitants, so a pretty substantial burg. And, uh, a French commander is making his way there. His name is uh, Commander de Laurences. And de Laurences writes to Napoleon telling him, don't worry, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna blaze through Puebla and take Mexico. And in this letter, he sends him, he says this, and I'm going to show you a picture of the man so you can hear his words and see his face. And you'll see how the words and the face kind of match each other. He writes to the Emperor of France. 
we French are so superior to the Mexicans in organization, in race, and in refinement of manners that I consider myself the owner of Mexico. You see the look in, see the eyebrows and the eyes? Not very surprising. So that kind of was the attitude of the French commander in charge of the Battle of Puebla. It's the same attitude that lost the French Dien Bien Phu in Indochina in the 1950s and lost France in any number of battles all over the world. We will win because we're better and then they lose. Puebla has a, a Mexican general, Zaragoza. And so the French arrive and there's Puebla. A few skirmishes and finally, okay, ceasefire. But French troop movement made the Mexicans within Zaragoza think, ah, they're attacking us. So he sends, Zaragoza sends emissaries to the French. The French think that the emissaries are simply the first vanguard of an attack. And so on that fateful day, Cinco de Drinco, as it is called in some parts of the US, Cinco de Mayo, the French attack. And de Laurence, the French commander, fully expected the people of Puebla to rise up. They'd all been told that the people of Mexico did not want the Republican government and wanted an empire, which was not true. And this was part of the reason is that the, the, the Mexican monarchists in exile had told Napoleon this. Oh, don't worry, everyone in Mexico will be on the side of the French. This was not quite true. And so to the surprise of the French commander on site, no uprising. So he has his artillery, he starts pounding Puebla. Then he sent his infantry to take over the place. But the artillery ran out of cannonballs, and so they were no longer under cover. And the Mexican infantry defended Puebla tooth and nail. They even took to the field, so they sallied out of Puebla. And the Mexican cavalry sallied out and flanked the French infantry, driving them up a slippery hill. Now, this is a tropical zone. And those of you who've been to or, or you've grown up in tropical countries, you know that you can set your watch by the torrential rain sometime between noon and 3 p.m., okay? Usually around 2 p.m., big downpour, everything is cooled down and cleaned off, and you can go out for a walk. The Mexicans knew this. The French had some idea. I mean, they'd been there for a while, but they, it was not ingrained in their habits. So they have to go up this hill. The French are retreating up a hill which is now torrentially drained and slippery. This is the famous retreat of the 6,000. Every detail of this battle has gone down in history and the retreat, of course, is called the retreat of the 6,000. I'm going to show you a quick picture, one of the two famous paintings of this battle. On horse, you see the Mexicans with the sombreros, okay? You see the French Zouaves with their characteristic sort of Middle Eastern looking uh, pants here. And it's a pretty good battle scene in the sense that it really looks like total mayhem, doesn't it? Lots of smoke, people dashing to hither and yon. So it's a defeat for the French. France, and the number of the dead tells the story. The only 172 French dead, 87 Mexican dead. This was no hecatomb. The French had 304 wounded and 35 captured as, as, as prisoners. The Mexicans, 131 wounded and 12 missing. 
there's a bit more than a skirmish, but I mean, come on, this is not a Waterloo, but it is El Cinco de Mayo, and it will resound around the globe. This is the great mythic victory of the Mexicans. They're not going to min win many battles in this war, but they do win this one. They win another one as well, to which I'll get in a moment. And this gives to the Mexican back their pride and their hope. Their country's been a mess essentially since independence. They haven't been able to pull up their socks this whole time. They're in debt and they win. Uh, by the way, they sidebar. Did you know there already had been a war between France and Mexico in 1821? And it was called the Pastry War because it was over some pastry chef felt that his rights weren't being respected. He was French in Mexico. And it was, it was, I mean, if there ever was a Banana Republic style war, it would be a war called the Pastry War, okay? And they'd lost that. And here was, a, and they've lost against the US. They've lost a third of their territory, California, New Mexico, Texas. Finally, they're proud of something. And it was against all odds. Here was the mighty French army. The Mexicans were using Napoleonic War, and by the Napoleonic War here, I mean Napoleon I, rifles that the British had sold them. We have to fill in from the front, you know, whereas the, the French soldiers were using Chasper rifles. Historian Jiménez Moreno, Mexican historian, will say that this triumph of Puebla contributed to forging a Mexican identity. But the French, of course, see it differently. For them, this is awful. At this point, everyone is getting cold feet about this invasion. Napoleon even is. He tells Maximilian, this is your last chance to get out of this, by the way. Now, by the way, Maximilian has not yet officially been asked to be emperor, but everyone knows he's in the cards, mainly because he's the only one, and also other reasons why he said yes. The troops on the ground are beginning to grumble that they're fighting to fill the pockets of the emperor's half-brother, the Duc de Morny, or some people say, we're fighting on a woman's whim, meaning the Empress, Eugenie. He needs victory, as Napoleon III does. Now he sends more. He sends 30,000 troops, well-trained and well-armed. And that's what really tips the scales in favor of France. He sends a new general, General Forêt, a tall, hard, rude man, unpopular with the men, who will be replaced by another much better general, Bazaine, who's still not going to win in the end, but that's a next story. For the first time in history, an iron-clad vessel crosses the Atlantic, Le Normandie. This is the age when ironclads developed principally during the, the war of secession between the states, between the Confederate States and the United States. But the French also built, and they send one, mainly to show, because the French are afraid that the Union is going to intervene. The Union is afraid that the French are going to take the side of the Confederacy, which was likely. Most European powers are tilting to the Confederacy. But the US is going to stay out of it. The French send an ironclad to show that they have ironclads too. And disease, so they all show up in Veracruz, disease befalls them. The famous disease from this war is called the Vomito Negro. You know it as yellow fever. There's going to be a corps of Belgians. After all, the wife of Maximilian, Charlotte, is Belgian. And some Austrians too, in that hot climate. 
and they're going to win. There'll be a second Battle of Puebla the next year in 1863, where Puebla is completely taken, and that opens the door to going to Mexico, which is the next stop. Part of this invasion was another, I've told you there was another victory of Mexico. It took place on the 30th of April, 1863. It's the Battle of Camarón. Camarón. And it was a French legion. Those of you who are history buffs of the French Foreign Legion, the 30th of April, 1863, is one of the holidays of the French Foreign Legion. And yet, it commemorates their defeat. It's typical, by the way, the French to celebrate defeats. This defeat is because 65 foreign legionnaires held off 3,000 Mexicans until there were only five left, and then those five legionnaires charged the 3,000 Mexicans with bayonets. And one of the captains had a prosthetic wooden hand, which was recovered and sent back to France, and it is the French Foreign Legion's most venerated relic. So you see how this small, harebrained, really, I mean, to speak seriously, scheme of invading Mexico for a Habsburg emperor resonates, even in France. I was in the French army, and I remember we went to the Foreign Legion, to one of their uh, regiments there, and they have museums and things. This is the big deal for the French Foreign Legion. Anyway, 7th of June, 1863, the French take Mexico City, and they take most of Mexico. Well, they take all the towns and all the main highways, but a lot of the countryside is going to remain in, in the hands of rebels, rebel Republicans, we'll call them. So that was Puebla, okay. And it is taught to Mexican children to this day as being the day we beat the French army and kicked them out of Mexico. Not quite. But it is nevertheless a big deal. Now, let me deal with the consequences and then we'll go to the aftermath. So now Napoleon needs to put, as promised, a head of state to the Mexico. And they turn to Maximilian, and I'm going to show you some photos now, or pictures, I should say, of our dear Maximilian, who's a bit of a, in many ways, I would say, a tragic, uh, a tragic figure, um, in the sense that he, so here, for example, okay, I'm going to show you first a photo of the delegation um, that came to, uh, to ask Maximilian to be their emperor. So here you have the delegation of Mexicans. This takes place at Maximilian's palace, really mansion, on the Mediterranean coast near Trieste, which is now in uh, Italy, but at the time was part of the Austrian Empire. Here's another photo. Do you see him? Sort of a pale, fair, gangly-looking... European. He doesn't look Mexican at all. Blue eyes. He has that lip of the Habsburgs. And that hair, part, hair, the hair was parted all the way back, which is why you see it curling back here. And he parted his beard. It was the fashion at the time. Now I'm going to show you now the family tree of this man, just so you can see how he's related to all of these people. Okay, here we are. Here's in this box, Ferdinand Maximilian, son of Franz Karl and Sophia of Austria, grandson 
of Francis II, Holy Roman Emperor, a title that goes back to Charlemagne. So this is a dynasty whose power goes all the way back to Charlemagne, and they've ruled all of Europe in one way or another. He marries Maria Teresa of Naples and Sicily. Ferdinand the Benign was originally the emperor, but he was dim-witted because of um, intermarriage. He was weak-minded. So his brother, Franz Karl, became the emperor of Austria. And then Franz, well, for a bit, but he also, or rather, no, the empire went straight to Franz Joseph. And Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, is going to be the emperor of Austria until 1916. He's going to be there when World War I begins, just to give you an idea of how history can stretch out. Here's Ferdinand Maximilian. Now notice that Ferdinand Maximilian, that's our man, Max, his auntie, Mary Louise of Parma, was married to Napoleon, the Napoleon, the short one with a hand on the belly. And his cousin, therefore, was Franz Napoleon, was Napoleon II. Then Napoleon I had a brother, Louis Napoleon, over here. Napoleon I also married, had married before Josephine, who herself had a child by Alexander of Bernay called Hortense. And these two, so Napoleon I's stepson and brother, or stepdaughter, I should say, Napoleon I's stepdaughter and brother marry, and they beget Napoleon III, who is therefore step-cousin once removed of Maximilian. Okay, that was the whole point. So they're, in that bizarre dynastic way, related. Maybe that gave him an in as well. It's a bit incestuous. I mean, literally, actually, incestuous in some ways. But that's how things were in those days. So who was Maximilian? Who was this lanky, smooth-skinned, pale boy? He always had grown up in the shadow of his older brother, who would be this very long-lasting Austrian emperor. And by the way, it was in that empire that World War I began. It was another archduke, remember, who got shot by a Serbian nationalist? He was himself a bit of a liberal, Maximilian. He was opposed, for example, to the brutal repression of Hungarian nationalists when that happened under his brother's reign. He loved exotic plants and animals. When he was eight, he was given for a birthday present an exotic zoo with monkeys and toucans from Latin America. He loved that stuff. His wife, so I've mentioned her, Charlotte, or Carlota, as she, was, as she is called, the um, emperadora, I think you would say in Spanish. Here she is. Nice, I mean, very elegant lady, obviously, with a noble gaze. She knows who she is. She was very ambitious, too. Now, what kind of a reign? And by the way, he, when, in 1860, he'd gone to visit his cousin, Emperor Pedro II of Brazil, a relative of whom he had a crush on. Maria Amelia Braganza, that was his first love, but she died. So he could have actually married a Portuguese royal and been more directly related to Pedro of Brazil. Didn't turn out that way, but he went and he loved every minute of Brazil. He was made fun of a little bit. He would go hunting for butterflies with a white merino wool suit and a big hat and a huge net. You know, you can imagine going into the forest. It took five minutes for the jungle to destroy his hat and destroy his net, but he tried. And he himself admitted 
we came, I, I came to Brazil with more equipment than experience. So the idea of being emperor of a tropical kingdom appealed to him. Also, he told the delegation, I will only accept the throne of Mexico if you can assure me that the people want me. And they said, yes. And they provided forged papers to show that there'd been a plebiscite and that everyone wanted him. So he was kind of tricked into it. So he becomes emperor. And here's another, I mean, who were these people? They're in their 20s. He's what, not 30? He's a little over 30 when he goes. His wife is a young woman. And on the whole trip there, they, they write a handwritten book, 600 pages, on what court etiquette will be like once they're there. Of course, he has a beautiful outfit rigged up. He's the emperor of Mexico. Nice ermine, you know, in case you get chilly in those, those tropical winters. And that's him as emperor. But it'll come to a bad end, as you can see. But before we get to that, as long as, to make a long story short, as long as the French soldiers are there, he's there. So he arrives in Veracruz. Little detail that shows what kind of really palace European he is. He asks for all the streets of Veracruz to be sprayed with chlorine before he gets off the boat. Because you know those people. And this was not a move made to endear him to the Mexican population, who justly thought to themselves, does he think we're dirty? But he does arrive. He takes up the cause of the Indians, who were serfs, essentially. He abolishes the right of masters to, to whip the, the Indians on their property, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, he does set up a Habsburg court. So he's a benign emperor, a benign monarch. He only wants the good of his people. He's tender-hearted for the poor and the oppressed, but his court has to be dazzling, just like his brother's court in Vienna. In 1865, the Union has defeated the Confederacy in Anglo-Saxon North America, which means that the Americans up there can bring back the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine, as you know, was essentially Europeans keep your nose out of American affairs. This was the opposite of that. A French emperor bringing an Austrian emperor to take over. And the USA will do all in their power to promote and help Benito Juarez with money and with weaponry. Particularly now that the, the, the war with the Confederacy is over, they have all this extra weaponry that's not being used. Send it down. Brownsville, across the river, into a town which was called Baghdad. On the Mexican side, there was a famous battle of Baghdad, by the way, which involved some Buffalo soldiers, the black soldiers of the Union Army, fought against the monarchist armies of Mexico. So here's another side glance at how crazy things could be. So Napoleon III decides, it's getting too costly, I'm leaving. I don't want to ruffle the feathers of the Americans anyway. And he leaves, and it's one of the best organized retreats ever. In three days, all of the French troops leave from Veracruz in an orderly and well-organized retreat. Charlotte goes to Paris to appeal to Napoleon III. She begs him. She says, if you leave us, we shall abdicate. Napoleon III responded, eh bien, abdique? Well then, abdicate. He's completely dropped them. She tries other European courts. She even tries Pius IX. Nothing works. She telegrams Max, and she telegrams this. Todo es inútil. Nothing is working. 
none of my attempts are, are, are working. And this leads her to a mental breakdown. She was nearly interned on the, on the advice of, a, of, a, of an alienist. And she's essentially going to live and die as a mad woman. She dies in 1927. So she was around during the roaring 20s still. Maximilian throws himself in the arms of the conservatives to protect him. Napoleon sends someone to tell him, abdicate, get out of here. Maximilian, who is noble, says, my country is undergoing a crisis, which I shall confront and resolve. I am ready to drop the last drop of, to shed the last drop of my blood to defend my nation. This is chivalrous, noble, and suicidal. So the French leave. Maximilian is left holding the thing. And the epilogue is that Maximilian will be shot. And there are two famous paintings, which I'll show you now. One of them I already gave you a preview of. The last moments of Maximilian, you see the handsome, fair-haired, tall Austrian emperor. He's just confessed. The priest is weeping, a French priest, you can tell by the rabbit. His manservant is weeping. He's got his big hat here. And here is a representative of the government. The next painting is by Goyas, a very famous painting. It's part of three. The shooting of Maximilian. Here he is in the middle with two generals, both Mexicans who were faithful to the end, Mejia and Miramon. Mejia was pure Indian. Here he is. And Miramon, here he is, Yadogoti. And what the painter did, these men are all in Republican Mexican uniforms, all blue, with white uh, gaiters, you see. And then the sergeant is wearing a red cap and a different uniform. It's a French uniform. And this man has the traits of Napoleon III. Painter is saying, Napoleon, you killed Maximilian. It's nice. Now, it didn't turn out so bad for Napoleon because while his troops were in Mexico, he helped himself to, to all the silver from the silver mines, which will later enable the French to pay off the debt due to Bismarck incurred by the Franco-Prussian War. But that's another story completely. As for Mexico, Juarez is reinstalled and pursues his anti-clerical uh, policies, his land redistribution policies, take the land from the church. Didn't help anyone in the end. He, he even ran for re-election, which was unconstitutional according to a constitution that he had helped to draft. And he dies in office. And if the, word, if the name Benito sounds familiar to you, is because, yes, indeed, the Mr. and Mrs. Mussolini named their big-headed baby boy Benito in honor of Benito Juarez. So there's another tack for you. So what is this day in Mexico? Four days later, the 9th of May, 1862, Benito Juarez, president in exile, declared the anniversary of this battle, the Cinco de Mayo, was to be regarded as the Battle of Puebla Day or the Battle of Cinco de Mayo, and was to be a holiday. Now, it never became a federal holiday of Mexico. It is a holiday in Puebla and in Veracruz, because that's where most of the battles took place. There are military parades down there. But most of Mexico, it's not a day off. They go to work. It is a day off for school children, though. It's a federal school holiday, just for the schools. I checked for this year's 2020 Calendario Escolar, Today, now, as we speak, there is what they call suspension de labores docentes, meaning schools out. 
And indeed, the Cinco de Mayo has played a great role in the education of Mexican children. Um, I'll show you a typical uh, sort of schoolroom poster. This one dates from 1901. You see it? Biblioteca del Niño Mexicano. So this is the library of the Mexican child. El Cinco de Mayo. El Sitio de Puebla. So Juarez in not very Indian traits, but you can tell no mustache. The son of Mexico, however, has a nice curly mustache. And you see the French soldiers running away in complete defeat from Puebla. And that is kind of the myth that survives. And that's it for Mexico. Among Mexican-Americans, however, well, let's go back a little. When the news reached the gold mines of California, where many Mexicans were employed, especially Mexican exiles fleeing the imperial troops, they rejoiced, they shot rifles in the air, they had a little mini fiesta as soon as they heard of it in that one gold mine encampment in California. Not much celebrated otherwise. It did come back into favor among Chicano activists in the 1950s and 60s because it was the great anti-imperialist battle that we Mexicans won. There aren't that many, so they picked that one. And from there, it spread in the US, especially in the 80s and 90s. Why is this, you may ask? Well, I'll show you with one picture why. And I think all will be clear. Corona Extra, Cinco de Mayo, the real story of how a beer made a holiday. That's what it says. Okay, now it's true that you do see a Mexican spearing what I suppose is supposed to be a French soldier, but it tells you a beer made the holiday. And it's true, we needed a holiday between St. Patrick's and Memorial Day, and certainly before the 4th of July, we could be outside barbecuing, making guacamole with lots of garlic and lemon. Here's another one. Okay, this is even worse. Can you see it growing? Cinco de Mayo, this is Modelo. These do not look like heroic soldiers defeating French imperialist troops. But I think that's basically what it's become now. So let's talk a bit about the Cinco de Mayo today. Okay, I've seen two posters that are not very edifying necessarily. Also, another reason, this is funny, Cinco de Mayo is easier to say than Dieciséis de Septiembre, which is the actual date of Independence Day in Mexico, right? For a gringo, Dieciséis de what? Cinco de Mayo. So it's a bit of a made-up holiday in the U.S., but, and I'll end here. Now you know the back of the story, maybe more than you needed to know. You've seen the story, how it's a battle, okay, between Mexicans and French in this weird confrontation of two worldviews, really. And getting beyond the petty aspects of this, which I've pointed out plenty, it really is a confrontation between the old world and the new world. And I don't mean geographically, I mean politically and religiously. The world of progress and anti-clericalism and a constitutional republic versus the world of divinely appointed monarchy, the rights of kings, strong Catholic institutions, and respect for tradition, including the traditions of the Indians. Don't forget the Indians. It's an important litmus test of what was going on. And then today, it's a day when you have guacamole and tacos and uh, a, a, an adult beverage of your choice that ends in A or in O. But I want us also, now, do not do this in my name. Do not approach some nice, you know, little Mexican-American girl with a Mexican flag wearing a costume today and say, you know, and set her straight and make her cry. Please don't do that. A lot of young Mexican-Americans today 
hold on to this feast. Now, we know now, I've told you, that this whole holiday is due, on the one hand, to the rapacity of liquor companies. It's also due, it has to be said, to the multicultural lesson plans of well-meaning Anglo-Saxon school moms. I understand that too. But it's come to be a symbol of pride in the history of their country and of their ancestors, of the Mexicans. And for that reason, I would recommend that you use sensitivity and respect. And certainly I myself, even though I've gone out of my way to drink French brandy today, French cognac, there's no reason not to celebrate the day too. And that's my little talk on the Cinco de Mayo. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Mapino. You're welcome. I think now that we can go and look at some uh, questions, if you're ready, Dr. Mapino. Sure. We have this question coming in from Jose. How much damage did Juarez's government and its policies do to the church in Mexico and other parts of Latin America? Yes, very good question. So as I said, they confiscated the church's land, which caused a flight. Lots of bishops fled. And it inserted this bad blood between Republican ideals and the church which means, I don't want to say there's a kind of feud, but each side is going to be more rigid in its attitude towards the other, which is going to mean that the, the United States of America model of religious freedom that has enabled the church really to thrive and grow in this country is not going to happen in Mexico. And much as in Spain for that reason, the, the, the church is going to find itself by default on the side of the anti-Republicans. And the Republicans, by default, are going to be anti-clerical so that there will be no middle ground. If you want to be pro-democracy and pro-republic, you'll have to give up your faith. But if you want to hand on to your faith, you're going to have to be on the other side. That's going to lead to the Cristeros. And to this day, I believe, officially, by law, Mexican priests are not allowed to wear the cassock in public. And all of that goes back to those days. So yes, it's going to have lasting effects. Now the people are going to remain faithful to the extent that they can. The Indians will too, but it's going to be a big blow to the faith of the Indians when they see Republican forces. So I'm speaking of this war of La Reforma, late 1850s, early 1960s. They will see Republican forces with the full rights of the law desecrate their churches and sack their churches and wreck the statues. That sort of thing happened and, and disperse the relics. And was, was going to, it's going to do the, the Indians fully expected that lightning bolts would come down and slay the Republican soldiers who did this. And when it didn't happen, a lot of these Indians questioned their faith. So it inserted a, 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 a virus, if you like, of, of, of disbelief into a lot of, the, a lot of the Mexican population. So Mexico, from that point of view, there may be some Mexicans among you who can nuance my words, but it, from the point of religion is a land of high contrast, surprising contrast between strong cultural Catholicism, great feats of faith. After all, the Cristeros didn't come out of nowhere on the one hand, and on the other hand also, as in France and other countries of Europe now, the strong anti-clerical secular form of government. From that point of view, in fact, Mexico is more of a, of a secularist European country in many ways, much like France, say. 
Continuing on this Indian theme, the Lopez's are asking um, for a reference regarding the Aztec er aristocracy under the Spanish colonization or yes. recommendation. That's a very good question, particularly because it's an aspect of, a, of colonization that hasn't really been celebrated. And in part, that is because so many of the histories of colonization tend to be anti-colonial. And so anything good or respectful of local traditions that might have taken place under the Spanish is glossed over. Now, to be honest with you, I did not find that many reference to this. It's never denied. But you will find it. I think even there's a Wikipedia page on the old nobility, and there was a name for it. I don't want to say it's vieja nobleza. It's something like that, of this, this strange quirk of, of the Spanish empire, which goes really all the way back to a decision made by Isabel and Ferdinand uh, at the beginning of the exploration of the New World, which, in which they said, the Indians are our subjects, just like the Spanish are. They must not be enslaved and they must be respected. And so for this reason, now, understood, the nobility that, was, that kept its privileges in the New World was the nobility that embraced Christianity. Uh, but besides that proviso, they, they stayed in place until the end of the privileges, of, uh, which took place, I think, during the second term of Juarez, but I'm not so sure anymore. As to a reference, I'm afraid I can't give you one just now. I could dig into it. But if you do a bit of research, you should be able to, to find it. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, Dr. Pepino, do you know like what happened to the Tilma of Guadalupe during that uh, reforma? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know what happened to the Tilma. Manifestly, I mean, it, it wasn't lost. Or do you know? Do you know, Norma, what happened to the Tilma? Does anyone? <laughs> if anyone knows, tell us. My inclination would be to think that it was either safeguarded or even left there. There are some things that even a Republican Freemason will not touch, and I imagine that Tilma would be one of those, but I don't know. I hear I have to say, no say. And Anna, um, would you like to take yourself off of mute and ask a question? My question to you is, where did the ancient regime that believed in that divine right of kings, where in the church history, is, where's the origin of that belief? Can you just talk just a couple minutes on that? Yes, it, and it goes back to the very origin of European monarchies, which is to say the Germanic takeover of the Roman Empire. So you have to go back to the fifth century, where the story is that when Saint uh, Remigius made Clovis king of the Franks, a dove came down from heaven with a vial of oil with which to anoint Clovis. And the way it's interpreted is that the Frankish line, at least, is a resurrection of the Davidic line for a new Christian kingdom. And from that lineage, I mentioned to you how the Habsburgs and the Borbones also, in fact, all of these families, in one way or another, are ultimately descended from Charlemagne. So, okay, because he's the Holy Roman Emperor and they all descend from him. Now then you may also ask, well, what does Charlemagne have to do with Clovis? Which is a very good question because they're not related. All the Merovingians descend from Clovis and they have this anointing. And the liturgy of anointing mentions David and the anointing of David and all these things. 
Then the father of Charlemagne, Pippin, is the prime minister of the Merovingian king. The Merovingian kings themselves have been doing nothing for a century and a half. It's always the prime ministers who end up being from the same families who take over really the rule. And he, Pippin, realizes he's ruling the country without being the king and he, he, because he does not have that descent or that anointing of the Clovis line, the Merovingian line. He writes to the Pope, this is Pope Zachary, and he writes to Pope Zachary says, in this empire of the Franks, which is now most of Europe, those who rule are not kings and those who are kings do not rule. What are we to do? And the Pope says, for the good of Christendom, I decree that the crown passes from the Merovingian family to your family, they'll be called the Carolingians. And from this day forth, let only your descendants wear the crown of the Franks. So again, it's a divine authority, the papacy, that determined that change of dynasty. And from then on, the descendants of Charlemagne are essentially the kings of Europe. And they felt that that was what God wanted for that dynasty. Now there are, you know, twists and turns and, and uh, second marriages and bastardy and all these things going on. But essentially that's where it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Frankish realms as successor states to the Roman Empire. So it's a long story that goes way back. Thank you, Dr. Papino. I believe we'll end with that question. And yes, thank you for a fascinating evening and drawing out all the little details of the Battle of Puebla as well as the power of modern advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.